Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 78. We're traveling with three two battalions, Echo and Gulf companies that had entered Angola, deployed in pseudo operations in 1984. Something called Operation Forte was on the go. When we left off, the convoy of vehicles had headed directly north and were targeting Savati, about 50 kilometers into Angola. Colonel Eddie Falun led this unusual operation. It was early September 1984, and after crossing the cut line, the convoy stopped north of Katwitwi on the road to Savati. At first light the following day, Sergeant Nortkir climbed aboard a biffle with four soldiers and drove off to a UNITA base 15 kilometers away to pick up a guide. But UNITA gave the sergeant a less than cordial welcome. They were detained. The UNITA guards couldn't believe that they weren't FAPLA because the South Africans had arrived from the north. After half an hour of explaining, a UNITA officer arrived. He was Colonel Severino and had taken to carrying a walking stick in classic officer tradition. He was also well turned out, ironed uniform and polished boots. Severino was suspicious. He could not believe that the SADF convoy had somehow passed his base and other UNITA positions without being spotted. Now they were close to Savati. Once he'd been convinced, he offered to help and pointed to his gas truck and its tiny driver, who looked like he wasn't even of high school age. Being so young, this youngster was also completely and utterly unafraid of death as he sped off in the gas. It had taken Sergeant Norkia 90 minutes to reach the UNITA base in his buffel. It took them 20 minutes for the return journey where the rest of the South Africans waited, skidding through the sandy trails at over 60 kilometers per hour. Severino didn't seem to notice, and jumped out of his gas to greet Colonel Fulium. They set off once again, passing Savati, traveling along the Kabanga River, heading north. Eventually, the road ran out. They were now driving along a trail and crossed the Tandao River, then stopped that night at a spot selected by Unita. Fulium seemed unhappy. The nearest water was at least a kilometer away. They were all issued their Unita uniforms and equipment, and began to familiarize themselves with the KY-500 communication system. Everything was in Portuguese. Eventually, at 1800 hours on the 7th of September, the convoy took off again with Colonel Severino leading the way to what he said was a well-prepared base 90 kilometers north near the Techimpolo River. They arrived at 0400 in bright moonlight, but Fulun sensed they may not be in a great spot. He ordered the soldiers to make themselves comfortable for a few hours of sleep before they had offload. Fulun had kept an eye on the map and his position. The SA units were now in no man's land between UNITA's base to the east on the banks of the Kobanga River and a FAPLA brigade deployed to their west around Techimotete and Kasinga. They were going to be a buffer for any large-scale attack. Colonel Fulun then spent a few hours searching for a new site for his base and found an ideal spot further east at Katreka, which was close to the Kobanga River. Severino complained, but Fulun put his foot down and they moved. There's always some degree of tension amongst allies when it comes to commanders, and this was no different. Two days later, Echo and Foxtrot companies began patrolling towards the Kineni and Chipolo rivers, looking for Swapo. Between September and the end of November, 53 patrols were recorded, which picked up Swapo's spoor close to Techimotete and Kasinga. The Angolans were supposed to be ensuring that Swapo had left the area as part of the fast-degrading JMC process towards peace, but they were clearly ignoring the insurgency. Then, on the 19th October, Foxtrot Company found a small group of Swapo 30 kilometers east of Kasinga, 
just south of the Bali River. There was a short, sharp firefight, but Swapo retreated after being bombarded with 60mm mortars and 40mm grenades. Two weeks later, on the 3rd of November, Foxtrot Company and FAPA clashed near Bambi, and a FAPA soldier by the name of Ernesto Sijemi was taken prisoner. He told 3-2 Battalion that Swapo were allowed to move through Tichimuteti and were walking to assembly points just north of the cut line with Southwest Africa. By now, the SADF had learned a few extra lessons about operating as UNITA, and one concerned their specially manufactured Poloni rolls I mentioned last episode. The SADF wanted to supply the men of Operation Forte with food that could not be linked to South Africa, so instead of the usual tinned food, they'd concocted a sausage in plastic, a kind of bush poloni. But the big problem with this design was that the sausage tended to blow up in the hot Angolan conditions. Troops found their backpacks covered in this meaty sludge and goo. The poloni was replaced with dry rations. And so the patrolling continued with the SADF noting each swap was spoor until suddenly in early November, the leader group was summoned to Eddie Fulun's tent. The time had come, he said, to be circumcised. And just to show true leadership, Fulun said he'd go under the knife first. Special Forces Doctor Lieutenant Pete Kutsia was to carry out the sensitive surgery, the first on a South African soldier almost 200 kilometers inside enemy territory. Each NCO or officer was laid down on a rough table, at least those who agreed. The reason was simple, hygiene. Troops had to spend almost four weeks at a time unwashed, and this was going to cause them health problems in the heat and humidity of Angola. According to 3-2 vet Piet Nortke, the response was mixed, with Sergeant Major Mike Rogers suggesting they change the name of the operation from Forte to Foreskin. Strangely enough, Sergeant Tinas Ferreira, based at Tandao, heard about this circumcision plan and wanted to ensure that he remained healthy, so he took a three-day journey through the bush to reach the bush surgery. The doctor took one look at him and told the sergeant he'd wasted his time. He was already circumcised. Perhaps Ma Ferreira had forgotten to tell him. His trip, however, was not a failure. He'd brought 500 kilograms of flour with him, and the troops then ate fresh baked bread from then on. While Foxtrot was finding Swapo trails, Golf Company was not. They had been deployed down both sides of the Kubanga River heading to the cutline from the north and had found no sign whatsoever of Swapo. Local intelligence officers believed Swapo had now switched their base in the region to Bambi Post. That had been wiped out during Operation Ascari, but Captain Herman Mulder now believed it was back in business. While the Rekis were carrying out pseudo-operations to the west, dressed as Swapo and carrying no backpacks and very little webbing, 3-2's UNITA equipment was causing the South Africans problems. They carried traditional military-grade backpacks, but the design led to shoulder and back injuries. Patrols were averaging two weeks at a time, and many of the troops carried 81mm mortar bombs as well as their own water and ammunition. There was much grumbling. Eventually, Fulun allowed Foxtrot and Golf to revert to their 3-2 battalion backpacks. And that was just in time for the troops to be relieved by Bravo Company and Charlie Company, led by Lieutenant Richard Olsen and Captain Frank Klenenberg. Bravo and Charlie patrolled for almost a month when Bravo Company ran into 150 FAPLA soldiers 45 kilometers west of the 3-2 base on the Kabongo. 
Two Swapo guys had led Fapler towards the South Africans, and they were moving in single file through the bush when Bravo spotted them and opened fire. During the three-hour battle, one of Fapler's 82mm mortar spotters climbed a tree for a better view and was then shot out of it. Fapler believed they were facing Unita and fought with great vigour. They suddenly stopped fighting and withdrew. Shortly afterwards, radio intercepts confirmed 15 Fapler dead, 11 wounded, 1 captured. Here were the South Africans inside Angola, fighting Fapler pretending to be Unita, while supposedly coordinating peace moves at the same time. You can see how this whole JMC idea was doomed. Fulun then realised that had he not moved his initial base eastwards, this large Fapler patrol would have stumbled on the HQ. Meanwhile, his relationship with Colonel Severino remained strained until the latter stepped on an anti-personnel mine and was killed. The replacement Unita Commander Colonel Joel asked Fulun to start training his men in the principles of warfare, including fire and movement and other manoeuvres, which the 3-2 commander agreed to do. The South Africans were aiming at finding Swapo's new Bambi post position. They began sniffing around the area in early 1985. Just past midday on the 3rd of February, a platoon from Echo Company was patrolling close to the Kuvalai and Bambi rivers around 80 kilometres west of their main 3-2 base. Someone was chopping trees down, and as they moved in to investigate, the platoon took fire. They hit the deck and spotted around half a dozen men jumping into a Ural truck which sped off. Echo Company platoon commanders thought this was part of a Fapla contingent from Techumuteti, seeing that Swapo apparently didn't use vehicles in this part of Angola. They were wrong. The platoon moved a few kilometres east to set up a temporary base. Then they came under sporadic 122mm rocket fire attack, but the enemy missed. Still, that was quite a surprise. Then a few days later, on the 11th of February, a platoon from 3-2's Charlie Company was involved in a routine patrol near the Bali River when things went very badly wrong. The company had been warned to make a detour around the area where Echo Company had been hit by rocket fire, but the platoon's leadership decided to take a shortcut. They marched straight into one of the better protected Swapo bases, and they were hopelessly outnumbered. At first the enemy was shocked, and for a few moments Charlie's platoon seemed to hold the initiative. But the massive firepower facing them quickly became apparent. Swapo's over 100 men and women opened fire with everything they had, in the first half an hour, the company took heavy casualties, with Swapo's 82mm mortars causing havoc. British operator Lieutenant Dave Light died instantly hit below his eye. When Swapo tried to drag his body away, they were fought off and managed to take his A-72 radio and wristwatch. Things were going to get a lot worse. Medics were running around trying to attend the wounded, which was stacking up. Seven members of the company died almost immediately. Most are shrapnel wounds from the 82mm Swapo mortars. One of the men who had been hit numerous times and had a huge stomach wound shot himself. It was bloody chaos. The company fought until dark when the casualties were moved to a temporary emergency base. Three more died that night and a fourth before dawn. Eleven men were now dead and at first light on the 12th of February, Lieutenant H.G. Van Veik, who was the Special Forces doctor, reported he'd run out of bandages, intravenous fluids and painkillers. They'd also had to separate the wounded over many metres just in case of another bombardment by Swapo's 82mm mortars. At 1000 hours, another 3-2 rifleman died of his shrapnel wounds, 
Then two Swampa were killed as they crept through the bush towards Charlie Company. Meanwhile, Bravo had been dispatched from headquarters and were on their way to help. But the thick bush and gullies made movement difficult, and they were forced on a gruelling trek through the terrain as vehicles couldn't approach. They were dropped six kilometres away and jogged through the sand, only arriving at 1700 hours 30. Charlie had been fighting for two days by then. They'd almost run out of ammunition and were about to be overrun themselves. They now began moving everyone back out of the killing zone, including carrying 19 wounded on homemade stretchers and the bodies of the 12 dead. The South Africans eventually reached the vehicles near the Bali River, arriving back at HQ with body bags and casualties. But there was some better news. Colonel Fulun had spotted a landing strip that was overgrown. It had belonged to one of the local farmers before he'd fled during the Civil War. They called for a Dakota to be sent to airlift the wounded. The strip was cleared and checked for mines. They quickly began driving a buffle back and forth along the airstrip and alongside. Fortunately, it turned out because the buffle triggered an anti-personnel mine. Villun wasn't so sure about other mines and told comms to contact the Dakota and call off the landing, but the pilot didn't answer. They had no choice but to set fire to the diesel fuel torches lining the runway and the Dakota landed. Within six minutes, it was back in the air, all dead and wounded aboard, along with the ops medics. Attention turned to the two Swapo prisoners who'd been taken during the battle. One revealed that he was a Swapo commander and had been ordered to march to the Eastern Area Headquarters. They had headed to what they thought was the 8th Battalion Supply Camp, but actually was Charlie Company's temporary base. Their base was 600 metres north. So it was a kind of copycat moment. He'd walked into a 3-2 mobile HQ and Charlie Company had stumbled into a Swapo firebase with catastrophic results. Then a short while later, Echo Company was patrolling 30 kilometres east of Kasinga and they spotted Spoor, at least six Swapo on the move. After plans were made to ambush the six, heavy mortars began falling on Echo's temporary base and about 70 Swapo guerrillas began to surround them. They withdrew systematically, but to the north, as Swapo had cut off their escape to the south. It was a furious firefight, and the enemy managed to capture Echo Company's equipment, including the commander's KY-500 radio and the B-22 radio codes. That was damaging, and worse, they had also captured an area map with all three two bases and some UNITA bases identified, as well as all the patrol routes being used. An Echo Company soldier was killed, and another wounded in the retreat. With this new intelligence, Swapo began to make it more difficult for 3-2, and Staff Sergeant Ron Gregory suggested they shift from using the tracks and vehicles to using donkeys. The animals were also used by Swapo to transport the heavier food and ammunition. This turned out to be a godsend. Not only did it make travel easier, but it confused Swapo, who thought that the SADF would only use vehicles. Both sides were learning bush tricks from each other by this stage of this long war. The South Africans were still searching for Bambi Port Base, but it wouldn't be long before it was found. Finally, in March 1985, and after crossing the Kuvalai River, 140 men from Alpha and Foxtrot companies found two sets of tracks a few hours old leading north. Their intelligence reports suggested Bambi was west of the Kuvalai River, so the group split in two for action. A reconnaissance team under Corporal Louis Lombard scouted ahead for Foxtrot, while Alpha's recon group was led by Major Mike Baston. Foxtrot headed southeast and crossed more Swapo Spur, 
Then they heard voices in the bush. Lombard noted the position and withdrew. The next morning, Foxtrot and Alpha joined forces, and at 1500 on the 26th of March, they began their attack. A 55-man stopper group trotted off to take a position north of Swapo's base, and then the 85 other men began their advance. They were only a few metres away from the base when they began firing, killing seven Swapo and two Fapla soldiers, including a lieutenant. One of the South Africans was wounded in the knee, but they escaped largely unscathed. The base was then systematically destroyed and all spare food removed. It was less than a month later, on the 15th of April, 1985, that Pretoria announced they had withdrawn from the JMC peace moves and it ceased to exist in late May. Secret negotiations were on the go already involving the SADF and UNITA to ensure that the moment the South Africans withdrew from the process, UNITA would head into the territory 3-2 Battalion had secured, along with 61 Mech and the Reckies. Operational Order Number 1-85 authorised 3-2 Battalion to attach a liaison team to UNITA's HQ 40 kilometres northeast of Ayonde in May. It was this war in the east that was sucking the South Africans into a much more serious conflict. The fighting along the Kubango and Kuvalai rivers was mutating. In August and September 1985, FAPLA started a major conventional offensive to seize control of their country from UNITA. Strong mechanised forces were on the way. Tanks and infantry fighting vehicles advanced from Quito, Guanavali, southeast towards Mabinga. The MPLA, the Cubans and the Russians wanted to control this little village because it had an airstrip that could be turned into an air base. If the Angolan government managed to secure the strip, they could target UNITA's headquarters at Jamba. Soviet advisers were deployed to make sure that FAPLA was successful. With the JMC dead in the water and the ruling National Party facing a concerted uprising back in South Africa, their reaction was to increase military firepower. And of course, by starting their mechanised attack from Quito Guanavali, the Angolans had set off what would become the final phase of this war, which would end at that strategic town in 1988. What happened next is for episode 79. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the series' visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.